This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Some time back, Brother Keith asked me if I would uh, give a lesson on personal work. And uh, this has been back a, a pretty good period of time. Probably goes back to August or September, somewhere back in there maybe. And uh, finally in November, I got around to giving the first part of this study that I want to do with you today and finish. And in the first study, if you remember, I took you through a historical and geographical uh, background for the setting of the story. And we talked about some of the, the features in the story, like the mountains, when the woman says to him, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem's where men ought to worship. We talked about a Samaritan and what they are. We read several scriptures in connection with those mountains and that worshiping place you mentioned. And we talked about a lot of things in the background of the story to lay the foundation that would better help us today when we studied. Of course, I didn't know it last week, but when we had Todd over, well, he dealt with John 4. And uh, I didn't know he was going to do that, but he did an excellent job. And he did things of a general nature that I won't be doing in my study today so much because my focus is more on the personal work and we will probably study the story in a little bit greater detail than what he was able to do last week. So uh, his lesson really just enhanced things for today a little bit further, moved the ball down the road a little bit, and so we'll try to put the icing on the cake here today if we can with the finish of this story. It's a beautiful story of personal work done by Christ. And, of course, Jesus, of course, was a master at, at everything He did. Personal work or whatever He did, He was always perfection. We would expect Him to be that way in His dealings with individuals and what we call personal work. Now there at the top in Matthew 28 and 19 in the Great Commission, Jesus said, "'Go ye therefore and teach all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's a charge that's given to us as disciples to carry out what we call here the Great Commission. Every one of us have a responsibility to teach other people or to arrange for them to be taught. If you're not able to teach, you should be able at least to set up studies. There's somebody you know, somebody you can reach. None of us can reach them. You have contact with them. You have influence with them. We don't know them. We don't come into contact with those people. They're not in our sphere that we operate in, and we just don't know them. But you do. Some of them are your family members. Some of them are your neighbors. Some of them are at your workplace. There's people everywhere that all of us know and have contacts with, some measure of influence with. They are people that need saving. And if we understand that these people are going to suffer eternally in a devil's hell, that's where they're headed. If we knew that their house was on fire, we'd warn them. If we knew that there were things that were of great danger to them, perhaps even a tornado on the way, we'd warn them. People need warning. They need teaching. They're going to go to hell without us. That's the bottom line. We have the truth. And we have, uh, we have the message that will save their soul 
if they so desire. Now they have a responsibility in that too, but so do we. And uh, so we need to be out and about our Father's business. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When his disciples later in this story asked him, Master, eat. He said, I've got meat to eat you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. And that's how Jesus viewed his whole life and mission. It was to do the will of his Father while he was here on earth. That too is our mission. And so we are to teach all nations. And a lot of brethren, I know, would like to do personal work. They'd like to be more involved in leading folks to Christ. Many of them say, well, I just don't know how. And you know, we can buy books of all kinds that might tell us, uh, give us some instruction, give us some enlightenment. And, and I'm not saying those books are not profitable. But I don't know of anything we can look at that's better than the example of Christ. And that's what this story enables us to do. Because he has a one-on-one -on -one encounter with a Samaritan woman with whom he has nothing in common. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Except what he uses to start his conversation. We'll talk about that later. And he turned that exciting challenge into a conversion of this woman. And through this one woman, Jesus converted most of a village. Most of an entire city was converted, and it all began with the teaching done with this one woman. <clears throat> now the Lord understood people, and He understood them better than we do, and He read their hearts. So Jesus, we've got to understand, had an advantage that we don't have. Uh, how would you like to stand up and teach like this, like I'm doing this morning, be able to look out at the audience and look at every member? and read exactly what they were thinking at that moment. Well, Christ could do that. He knew what their thoughts were. He knew if they liked Him, if they didn't like Him, if they hated Him, He knew it. He knew what they were thinking, if they were up to something, if they were trying to trap Him. He already knew what they were thinking. He read their hearts. He knew their thoughts in advance. Quite an advantage that Jesus had that we don't have, but... There are things that we can learn from him as he read people like this that will give us some an advantage. In John 2 now, in verse 24, 25, and this is one I don't have. The Bible says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus knew then what was in every person. He didn't need somebody to say, Hey, this person's background is this or that. He likes this or that. He doesn't like this or that. Uh, he's had so many marriages. He's had whatever, you know, just giving the background. Here's his occupation. He didn't need anybody to tell him that. He already knew people. And so when you walked up, he already knew your occupation. He knew your background, knew how many times you'd been married, how many wives you had if you were a polygamist. He knew everything in your background. We don't have that option, but he did. And um, yet there's things in his dealings with people where we can learn how he approached different things and what to do when we're rebuffed or when we're rebuked, like he gets rebuked by this woman who actually tries to start an argument with him, and he has to defuse that, and we'll look at how he did it because it can serve us well. 
Let's read verses 1 through 6 now. And I'm going to read these as we go and we'll make comments about them. And get the setting for the story here, 1 through 6. Remember, this is on the backside. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. Now let me just stop and comment on that. Christ was making more disciples on this occasion now than John was. John had said that would be the case, that I must decrease and he must increase. So John knew this would happen. And Jesus was making more disciples, although we're told here that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. He said the disciples did the baptizing. And the Lord must have done that by design or on purpose. Maybe some would say if Christ baptized them, well, your baptism was by Peter or by John. Jesus baptized me. Therefore, my baptism's better than yours because mine was by Jesus himself. Maybe the Lord didn't want people making that argument or thinking in that direction. So he just didn't baptize anybody. He had the disciples do it. Didn't matter who did the baptizing. And so he let them do that. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's about noon. The Lord now is traveling out of Judea, that's down, here's Jerusalem right here. You can see it on your little map if you can pick up the, the small print on it. I couldn't make it large enough. He's headed up here to the north to Galilee. But he has to go through Samaria right here in the middle. And he's just about at this point right here on the map. And you'll see it there. And if you can see your map well enough, you'll see a couple of triangles there. Those are mountains. <coughs> One of them, it'll say, it will tell you is Mount Gerizim, the other is Mount Ebal. And at the foot of Mount Ebal is the Samaritan city of Sychar. About a half a mile away at the foot of Mount Ebal is Jacob's well. And Jesus has reached that well now. He's a half a mile from Sychar. He is tired. He's weary. He's very thirsty. His disciples go into the city to buy food. Jesus sat on the well, <clears throat> and so he's just resting there while the disciples go pick up some supplies that they need. We're told that he must go through Samaria. We've talked about Samaria, haven't we? We know that after the death of Solomon, the children of Israel split ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. That the tribes to the north took a man by the name of Jeroboam for their king, the tribes to the south took Solomon's son Rehoboam. And two kingdoms were formed out of the twelve tribes, a northern and a southern kingdom, like America divided during the Civil War. And so you had a northern kingdom that was called Israel, a southern kingdom that eventually was called Judah because Judah was one of the principal tribes of it. And of course, uh, We've talked about how Assyria was a dominant world empire at that time, and these ten tribes ultimately became so wicked up here in the north that God allowed the Assyrians to come in from over here and conquer them, 
and the Assyrians could conquer anything they wanted. They just couldn't keep it conquered. They had problems with folks rebelling. They had to go back in three years later and conquer it again. So they came up with a scheme to avoid this. They would take part of the population out of a land they conquered and scatter it out into other nations that they had controlled and take some of those people and move them back into this land from where they had moved others. And that's what they did with the ten tribes. They moved part of them out. They moved us Gentiles or heathen people in. And the remaining part of the ten tribes intermarried with the remnant of those ten tribes and produced a mixed race, a mongrel race that was called the Samaritans. And of course Jeroboam was so afraid up here in the north when he formed this kingdom that his people would go back down to the south, that they would worship at Solomon's temple, and that he would lose control of his kingdom and they would ultimately kill him. And so he built an altar at Bethel and another one at Dan and he built golden calves and he set up a false system of worship up there in the north. So these Samaritans always had an idolatrous, polluted religion. They didn't know the true God. See, The law of Moses had been polluted. Their bloodline was polluted. Their race had been mixed, whereas in the south they were pure Israelites. Their bloodlines were pure from Abraham. And up in the north they weren't. They were racially mixed. <clears throat> and so the Jews just hated them. Jesus would often travel through Samaria and that's what he had to do here when he traveled between Judea and Galilee because Samaria lay right there in the middle. Now he's here at Jacob's well. He is hot. He's tired. He's thirsty. The problem is he doesn't have a bucket from which he can draw water and he has no rope. He's got no way to get this beautiful water that lies in that well. And evidently that's a very deep well as the woman will tell him later. But he's got no way to get any water out of it, and he's just thirsty. He sees a woman approaching. Let's read verses 7 through 9. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto, unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, Ask us drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus wants to save this woman as he sees her approaching here. And, and um, so how's he going to do that? This is one of the hardest things in personal work. He's got to make contact with this woman. He's got to make contact. How do you make contact with a person? Somebody says, well, you start a conversation. Well, yeah, that's a good way to make contact, isn't it? The problem is, what's he going to say to her? What have they got in common? How many times do you hear folks say, brethren say to each other, so-and-so is going to have to go talk to this person. I don't have anything in contact, in, in, com- in common with them. I don't have any common interest. Well, what kind of common interest does Jesus have with this woman? Let's think about that. Not very much. Uh, He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. We talked about the racial difference there. 
Her bloodline's polluted. Her religion's polluted. There's a racial difference. There's a worship difference. Remember Jeroboam set up those golden calves in the north and this woman likely has no real concept of the God of heaven. She really doesn't. Not the God that, that Jesus, of course, knows and is. Uh, she has a whole different concept. There's a worship difference then. And uh, so they've got all these differences between them. She is morally corrupt. He is the sinless Son of God. She's, she's had five husbands. She's shacked up with a man now that's not her husband. And Jesus has never committed a sin in his life. They don't have anything in common, it looks like. Not, not hardly a thing. And these, uh, these Samaritans then, of course, are, they're bothered by how the Jews feel about them. But they've come up with an argument uh, for the differences between them. I want you to look with me at, uh, I want you to look at Joshua chapter 8, if you've got a, a Bible there. Joshua 8. And I'd like to read verse 30 to 35. See, the Samaritans finally came up with this argument. Well, <clears throat> they said, look, uh, Jerusalem wasn't the first place where we worshipped when we first came into Canaan. Right here at this place is where, is where true worship was offered. I should just put this text up with my Bible. I hadn't thought about doing that, Bill. That might work real well for us. Joshua 8, verse 30 to 35. Let's just read this. When Joshua led the children of Israel now into the land of Canaan to conquer it, and when they had conquered the inhabitants of the land, the Bible says, Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is, is, is right beside the city of Sychar. The city of Sychar sits at the foot of Mount Ebal. So Joshua's built an altar here, you see, in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man did lift up any iron, and they offered their own burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, and he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger and he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings according to all that's written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not, before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversing among them. So what this, what this Samaritan race did was come up with this argument. They said, hey, look, Jerusalem wasn't the place where our forefathers first worshipped. When we came into this land, was Joshua wrong? He gathered all Israel right here at the foot of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. He placed half the camp under the shadow of Mount Ebal and half of them under the shadow of Mount Gerizim. And he read the law to them. And this was one of the first worshiping places that Israel had. Then you Jews come along 
And now you tell us that we've got to go to Jerusalem and worship. Let me read now from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 25. Because when Israel conquered the tribes that, that uh, dwelled in the land of Canaan, they never really run the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. I don't know if you know that or not. But they never really got rid of the Jebusites in Jerusalem. In fact, they just moved in with them. And David, I don't know if you know this, but David bought a hill from Ornan the Jebusite. And that's where the temple was later built by Solomon. Many believe it's the very hill on which Abraham sacrificed Isaac in the long ago. And David wanted this particular place. It was a threshing floor run by a Jebusite by the name of Ornan. And I'm going to back up to verse 21 here in 1 Chronicles 21. David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord, that thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee. Let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. David, King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. Now folks, that was what was paid for the temple mount over there in Jerusalem. It's still there today. It's got a, it's got a Muslim mosque sitting on it right now. That's where the temple once stood, probably the Holy of Holies. Now the Muslims control that hill over there. But David bought that off this Jebusite for these 500 pieces of gold, or 600. And, uh, and then, of course, Solomon came along and he built the temple on this exact spot. And that became the worship center for Israel. Now here's what the, here's what the Samaritans were saying to the Jews. You Jews are modernists. You're liberals. The way the old time brethren used to do it, we worship back in these mountains. Remember Joshua? Now you Jews, David's bought a hill here in Jerusalem off of a Jebusite, and Solomon built a temple there, and now you're trying to tell us that's where we've got to go worship. See, they thought they had a lot better argument. That was their argument to the Jew. We worship the traditional way back here in the hills like the old brethren used to do it. You Jews are liberals. You worship at Jerusalem. None of our forefathers did that. So they would hang this argument on the Jews, you see, trying to justify the way that they practiced there. So she's just mad at Christ. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She's just upset and she's mad. So when we look at these two here, Jesus and this woman have nothing, it seems, in common. They've got the racial difference. They've got the worship difference. 
She's a Jew. He's a Samaritan. He's the sinless Son of God. She's morally corrupt. As far as I can see here, brethren, they have one thing in common. They're both thirsty. That's it. And that's the very thing he used to start a conversation. Now listen. This is the first thing you and I need to see here. We've always got something in common with somebody that needs saving. Even if it's just we're thirsty. He said, give me to drink. That's the very thing that he used to start the conversation. And even then he startled the woman. And of course, uh, she starts arguing with him now about Jews not dealing with Samaritans. And you know they're bitter because a Jew would not even enter into the home of Samaritans. They didn't eat with them. They didn't socialize with them at all. Here he's trying to convert a woman that a Jew doesn't even enter into their house. And she's aware of all that and she's bitter about it. So she's bitter now and he's got her, he's got her dander up so to speak. Jesus knows that soon she's going to fill that water pot up. She's got a water pot with her. So she's carried it from that city. She's walked a half a mile to that well. Because from Sychar out to Jacob's well is a half a mile. And she's brought that vessel and he knows that she will fill that and before long she's going to walk off and this opportunity is going to be lost. This will be his only chance with this woman right here, right now. He has to seize the moment. The Bible tells us about redeeming the time because the days are evil. We get these windows of opportunity and sometimes we don't redeem the time. And these opportunities never come again. So he's got this one opportunity right now. So he's got to somehow uh, not only find this common interest, he's got to arouse her interest a little bit more clearly, a little bit more deeply. And here's how he does it, verse 10. Here's how he arouses her interest. Let me put this scripture back up. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, she says? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Lady, if you knew who you were talking to, if you really knew the gift of God, You'd be asking me for water instead of me asking you. Now that's really got her curious. After all, who can this be? So she's just, she's just fuming now. And uh, so let's read verse 11 and 12 and look at her reply right here. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You're offering me living water, and sir, you don't even have anything to draw with. The well's deep. In other words, how are you going to give me water? You know, you're asking water from me, and you're telling me that you can give me water that I, I would have asked of you if I knew who you were. Are you greater than Jacob? See, she's just fuming at him now. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well 
and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. This is an old traditional well. Our forefather Jacob drank here. You're, you're telling me you're greater than this man? Because he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him. And now she's curious and now she's mad. Who in the world do you think you are? So Christ has got to do something quick. This woman is, is really raging now. She's not, not taking this very well. And uh, here's what he's got to do, folks. And this is, a, this is a key point. He has got to arouse in her a sense of need. Now look, we have to make, we have to make contact with people. We have to start a conversation. We have to get their interest, rouse their interest. But the next thing we've got to do is uh, we have to awaken in them some kind of hunger or thirst. We've got to show them a need. You see, you cannot convert somebody that's complacent. Try selling a vacuum cleaner to somebody who doesn't need it. Imagine going door to door selling vacuum cleaners. And you're, you're, you're at a house there that's just immaculate and they don't really have a need for your product. You don't sell things. David don't sell houses to people who don't have a need. He just doesn't. You have to create a sense of need if people need something. And it's the same way in salvation. He's got to arouse in her a sense of need. Find something in her life, folks, listen, that she needs changed. Something that's not right. And watch how he does it here now. Watch what he finds in her life. Um, let's read verse uh, 13 to 15. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now he's found something, you see, she needs, something she wants to change, and here's what it is. Every day, she leaves that city of Sychar, and she walks a half a mile to that vessel, with that vessel, to Jacob's well to draw water. She has to fill that vessel. It's heavy. And she has to carry that another half a mile back to the city. I don't know how many times a day she does that. But if she does that every day, that'd get pretty old. And Jesus tells her, look, you drink of this water here, you're going to thirst again. But I've got water to give you, lady, that uh, if you'll take a drink of it, you'll never thirst. It will renew itself. It will be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now listen to what she said. Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's tired of drawing water. You see, the Lord's hit on the need that she has in her life. She wants her life changed. She's tired of making that journey every day to that well to draw water. And she wants this water that renews itself. Now she doesn't know this. She's asking for the living water. And before she's ready to receive the living water that Jesus is offering, this spiritual life, 
She's got to face her sins and she's got to repent. And this woman's morally corrupt. And so Jesus has got to help her face her sins. And He'll do this very carefully. Now He could just make this approach. He could tell the woman, look, you've got a need. You're morally corrupt, lady. You've had five husbands. You're shacked up with a guy right now. And He could have made that approach with her. But usually that approach just leads to an argument because if I start looking at you and I start picking on you and I start naming your faults, what's the first thing you want to do? Show me mine. You'll look at me and you'll pick me apart. And that won't be hard to do. We can look at each other and find faults with each other. And if he finds a fault with her, she'll try to find one with him. Before long, they'll just be in an argument. You don't come at people like that. Many times if you, if you approach them like that, they just get mad and they walk off. Jesus needs to make her face her sins, but He needs to do it more subtly than this, and He will. So He simply says to her, go call your husband and come hither. Let's read verse 16 to 18. Go call your husband. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. <clears throat> the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thine husband. In that saidest thou truly. So now he has just simply said, Go call your husband. He knows what her situation is. He has, he's brought up something that's going to make her think of her sins. And he's got those exposed here, you see, by just asking her to call the husband. He hasn't accused her of being morally corrupt. He hasn't made any kind of accusation, any kind of, uh, any kind of harsh criticism of her. He's just said, go call your husband. And of course, she says, well, I don't have one. She's not going to tell him the real story, so he tells her. He says, you're exactly right. You don't have a husband right now. You've had five and you're living with one now that's not. And so he exposes her sin. He does that very carefully. Now, that leads to the next thing. In other words, we've got to make people face their sins. If they're religiously wrong and in error, somehow we've got to make them see that they are. If they need Jesus, we've got to make them see that need. If they've got moral issues, we've somehow got to arouse their, their sense of need in regard to that and, and make them face their sins. And this is, this is tricky to do in personal work, but you've got to do it without alienating people. The Bible says the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle. Paul said to us, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. It makes a difference how we talk to people, how we approach them. Whether there's kindness, compassion in her voice. Whether there's love and whether they can see love and concern. <clears throat> and they could see this in Jesus. Now what happens with the woman now when he, when he gets on her moral issue? When he exposes her problem? Here's where we can learn something. She starts a religious argument. When you're doing personal work many times, 
you'll find out that those you're talking to will change the subject. When you get on the real problem with them, they want to start a religious argument with you. I was, uh, I was at a baccalaureate service one time in my hometown. There were several preachers there that night and each of us had a small part in that service. And I had a, either a Bible reading or a prayer. I don't remember what, not what they'd given me to do. Other preachers had different parts. And uh, when I walked into the gymnasium that night, the, there were two preachers in town. One was a Baptist preacher, the other was a Methodist preacher, and they were, they were having a discussion. And I overheard one say to the other, won't it be nice when we all get to heaven and there won't be any such things as Baptist and Methodist? And we'll all be one and be united? I overheard that statement, so I walked up to them. And I said, gentlemen, I know how we can do that right here on earth. One of the preachers at that point just walked off. <laughs> he didn't even want to talk. He just walked. <laughs> the other one looked at me and he said, you can't talk to you people. You can't talk to people like you. And I'd never met the man in my life. And I looked at him and I said, sir, that's really not very Christian of you. You don't know me. You don't know what my disposition is or my, you know, my personality or anything. You don't, know that I'm, you don't know that I'm what you've described here. You don't know that you can't talk to me. And he just blushed with shame. And that's what he should have done. And so I mildly just shamed the man. You see, they didn't want to talk about unity. They had a problem. It was division. All the churches in town were divided. They didn't want to talk about how to have unity here. They wanted to talk about how good it would be if we all get to heaven. Just stay divided down here. Stay divided down here and fight each other. And then when we get to heaven, well, everything will be all right suddenly. Suddenly we'll love one another and we'll get along. And we'll all believe the same thing. That's what they were trying to tell themselves. And... Uh, Rather than face that problem that they had with, with all this division and everything, they just picked on me. And one of them said, you can't talk to people like you. See? And he wanted to start a religious argument. And he brought up baptism. I hadn't said a word about baptism. He brought it up and he wanted to argue baptism. And everything. And I hadn't said, said one word about it. But my point is that people just start religious arguments because here's why. It's easier to argue religion than it is to repent. And they're trying to get around whatever the problem is, whether it's false doctrine, whether it's division, whether it's uh, sin. They're trying to get around that. They don't want to talk about it. And so it's easier to argue religion. And that's what she does right here to try to distract Jesus. And I want you to look now at John 4, 19 and 20, what the woman does. You're going to run into this when you personal work. Folks, this is practical stuff here. When he says, go call your husband, she says, I don't have one. He says, yes, you've had five, and the one you now have is not. She says in verse 19, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now see, Jesus hadn't said a word about that. She can see he's a prophet. He's read her like yesterday's paper. 
He knows her background, her marriages and everything. He knows she's living with a man now that she's not married to. He knows that. And he's made her face that, but she don't want to talk about that. What does she want to talk about? <clears throat> Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and we talked about Joshua? She said, now you Jews say that we got to go to Jerusalem down here to worship. But our fathers worshipped here. This is the way the old timers did it. In other words, we are traditionalists. You Jews are liberal. She wants to argue about the place to worship. And the Samaritans had got them a good argument on this. Let me share it with you. Let me open some scriptures for us. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12. And you can read that out of your Bible or I'll turn to it here. We'll try to get it on the screen. Genesis 12. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 7. I want you to remember now where they're at. Jesus is at Jacob's well. That well sits at the foot of Mount Gerizim. About a half a mile north is Mount Ebal. At the foot of Mount Ebal is the Samaritan city of Sychar. And we're told it's near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. But let's go back to Genesis 12 when God called Abraham. Verse 1. I'll read through verse 7. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed uh, out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered, and all the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. This is Sychar, this is Shechem. This is this area right here. When Abraham left Haran up, up in the north, and he journeyed down into the land of Canaan. This is about the first place he stopped in the land of Canaan. It was right here. Right where this woman is. And we read in verse 7, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So right here at this place, Abraham built an altar. And so what the Samaritans came up with was, you Jews have changed tradition on us. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. They could cite him, Abraham, coming to this very spot and building an altar right here. See their argument? Yet you Jews are telling us we've got to go up to Jerusalem. See? Let's read another instance here. Let's read from Genesis 33. And verse 18 to 20. Genesis 33, 18 to 20. Somebody else visited this place also. You remember when Jacob was sent by Isaac over to Padanaram, 
to some of the family over there to uh, find him a wife. He had married a woman named Leah and he had married Rachel. And when he left out of that place to come into the land of Canaan, they came to this very spot. See, here's the point. Jacob was here too. Now let's read verse uh, 18 through 20. Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field. This, this spot where his well is at. Jacob bought this, see? He bought a parcel of a field where he'd spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he erected there an altar and called it Eliohi Israel. And so you can see now this parcel of ground that Jacob had given to Joseph. This is when Jacob bought it. And so he's visited this place too. So the Samaritans had gotten them this argument. Abraham's been here to these mountains. Our father Jacob built an altar here. He digged a well here. He bought a piece of land right here. Furthermore, with that land, I want you to look at Joshua 24, verse 32. When Joseph went down into Egypt as a slave, remember he called the family down into Egypt to take care of them. <clears throat> but before they left Egypt under Moses, uh, that was hundreds of years after Jacob had died. Before Jacob died, he told the people, he said, look, I want you to bury my bones up in Canaan. God's going to visit you down here in Egypt one day. He's going to remove you out of Egyptian bondage here. He's going to remove you out of Egypt. You will go back and you will move into the land of Canaan as he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to give you this land. Now when you do that, he said, you carry my bones up there into Canaan and bury them. And they, Jacob made them swear they'd do that. They embalmed him down in Egypt, folks, and they put Jacob's body in a coffin. And they kept it for years and years and years and years. And when they left under Moses out of Egyptian slavery, they carried the coffin that Jacob's bones were in at his command, and they, they took it with them. When they'd crossed the Red Sea, that coffin went across the Red Sea. When they stopped at Mount Sinai to get the law, Jacob's coffin, his bones were there. When they wandered in the wilderness, they carried his bones because they were headed to Canaan to bury those. Now, Joshua here tells us what happened. Verse 32 of chapter 24. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So there's that parcel of ground that we read that Jacob bought. And now Joseph's bones, Joseph being Jake's, uh, uh, Jacob's next to the youngest son, Joseph's bones were buried in this place. Now let me, let me tie this together. And let's look at what we've got. <clears throat> the woman says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. What fathers? Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua. 
All of Israel were here at this place. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. David, remember, hundreds of years later, had bought a hill in Jerusalem off of Ornan the Jebusite, a threshing floor, and there they built the temple, Solomon did. And the Jews said, this is where you've got to worship. And the Samaritans were trying to argue, no, no, the way the old brethren did it was they worshipped here in the hills. You're telling me we've got to go to Jerusalem. So when Jesus gets on the moral issue with this woman and exposes the fact that she's been married five times and she's shacked up, she doesn't want to talk about that. She doesn't want to repent. What does she want to do? Start a religious argument with her. And so she says to Christ, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. He hadn't brought that up, she did. You ever been talking to, talking to somebody and they bring up instrumental music? They don't want to talk about what the Bible says, what you're dealing with. They want to get on an argument that's, that's uh, something that they want to dispute with you about. And they want to change the subject. They don't want to talk about the, the, the division that they've got or the false doctrine that they practice. If they abuse the Lord's Supper, they don't want to talk about this. Let's talk about the instrument. They'll start a religious argument. And what we have to do with people in order to save them for their own benefit, it's okay to talk these things with them later. But we've got to get them off those kind of arguments because they're unproductive. And so you never settle those kind of things and then you walk away upset with each other and nothing ever happens. So Jesus has got to get her off this argument about where to worship. Let's look at how he does it very carefully here. Watch, it, watch what he does. Let's go to the text now in John 4, verse 21 to 24. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh and now is when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, the Lord's taking her off the where to worship, and He's putting her focus on the who and the how. She has no concept of God. That's what He tells her. Ye worship, you know not what. Remember Jeroboam and his golden calves up here? That he'd set up here, at, uh, made him off altars and polluted their religion up here in the north? Christ is telling her, you Samaritans don't have a clue. You worship, you know not what. What difference does it make where we worship? And then he tells the woman, look, you don't understand God. God is a spirit. You can't confine God in these mountains up here. God is not confined to a, a building in Jerusalem. He is a spirit. God is everywhere. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so He's not subject to dwelling in a mountain up here where you can worship Him or down in a temple in Jerusalem. The hour comes and now is when the true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit. God is a spirit. He's everywhere. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. And then He mentions the truth. And of course, she didn't have the truth. They had no true worship. So you see, He gets her mind off the where you worship and on the who and the how. And that's where she needs to focus. 
She just wants to argue religion. She wants to argue the place. That's insignificant. Because God's not confined to a place. She doesn't understand that. So now he's got her attention there and got her off that very carefully. In verse 25 and 26, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he's come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now he's finally got her mind where it needs to be. And this is what you and I can learn right here. She brought up the Messiah. He didn't. But she knows that a Messiah has been promised. She knows this Messiah can tell her all things. She knows, that the, knows the Messiah can tell her where God is to be worshipped and what true worship's all about. <clears throat> and uh, when she says that, Jesus said, I that speak unto them, hey, you're looking at him. He's right here. And she understands now why he read her like a book and knew she'd had five marriages and was shacked up. Now she understands this is the Messiah. I'm dealing with the Messiah here. You see, he's finally got her on her attention, or got her attention on the one that can help her, and that's Christ. And if we can ever in our teaching bring people to understand who Jesus Christ is, brethren, this may sound crazy to some of you. It may sound too simple. But I'm persuaded that most people religiously today don't understand Jesus at all. And many don't understand what they're dealing with and they don't respect the authority of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. we got everybody around us that wants a Savior. They don't want a Lord. Jesus is not only a Savior, He's Lord. And so when you learn who He is, then the next thing to do is find out what He wants. I'm reminded of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You know, when Jesus spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Two questions Paul asked. Number one, he said to Christ, who art thou? He said, I'm Jesus. What was the next question? What will you have me to do, Lord? When you learn that Jesus is Lord, the second question ought to be, what do you want? What do you want? Because he's Lord. And so if we can get people to believe deeply in Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He has the right to absolutely tell them everything in matters of religion and life, then we won't have near as much trouble converting them. But until they respect the authority and the, and the nature of Christ, we will. It'll just be religious arguments. Everything centers on Christ and who He is. Now, <coughs> the disciples returned. Let's read verse 27 to 30. Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? <coughs> the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. So here comes the disciples now and, and they're asking Christ here, well, Christ, have you, you know, have you had anything to eat here? Why? They didn't ask, why are you talking to this woman? They knew she was a Samaritan. 
They didn't ask any of that. The woman then just left her water pot. She didn't even take water back. She just left it right there. Maybe for Christ, I don't know. Maybe the rope with it. She left her water pot, went her way into the city. And she didn't go to that city and say, Now look, let me tell you everything you need to know about true religion, true worship. What was her message there to the men in the city? Come see a man. That's our message. Come see a man. His name's Jesus. We've got to get people to come see Christ. Because if they can ever come to believe in Him like we do, that He is authority, that He is the main authority in religion, that everything we do must be founded in whatever He says, revealed in these Scriptures, people won't have near as much trouble changing things they need to change and getting right with God and becoming saved. Come see a man is what she said. And so they went out of the city to come see this man. In the meanwhile, verse 31, let's read. <clears throat> Jesus talks with the disciples here. Verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any brought him aught to eat? Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. For they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye entered into their labors. So the Lord reminds them now, I'm not here for physical things. My meat... My food is to do the will of Him that sent me and finish His work. Look at these fields out here. He said they're white all ready to harvest. It's time to reap. Time to reap. And He says, He that reaps receiveth wages. I'm, I'm sending you out to reap some things where you've bestowed no labor. You know, some sow and some reap. I've come in and reaped harvest off other people's work. Sometimes I've gone in and held meetings, gospel meetings. And I'd come in and baptize several people and somebody would say, look at what old Pat did. And old Pat didn't really do anything. That seed had already been sowed by somebody in that local congregation. I came in and did the baptizing. One sows, another reaps. And when we don't care who gets the credit, we'll get a whole lot done. These fields out here around us now are white. There's over 500,000 people between Fayetteville and Bella Vista. They're white under harvest. <clears throat> we all want to win souls. We have a wonderful example here to study. Now let's look at 39 and close, close the, the study. <clears throat> 39 to 42.
Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So she converted some, and others went and heard him for themselves, and they were converted not because of her, but they went and heard him. They investigated themselves. It didn't matter. Jesus converted most of that village. But this all started, brethren, with one woman, one soul. Started off really small, didn't it? What can one person do? I heard one time of a gospel meeting that occurred in Mississippi. A preacher went down there and held a meeting in a congregation. When he came back to his home congregation, somebody said, well, what kind of meeting did you have? Did you have a good meeting down there? He said, well, it wasn't too good this year. He said, we just baptized one woman. One woman's all we got. Beloved, that one woman raised four sons. Every one of them made preachers. <laughs> that was a successful meeting, wasn't it? Because every, every, every one that those preachers converted, that guy that baptized the mother had a hand in it. That one woman. Did you know the church at North Ark started off one home study? Did you know that? There's probably 90 or so over there meeting this morning. That started with one home study. We had no idea it would turn into a full church starting a congregation. You never know what one soul will lead to ultimately down the stream of time. I remember when this little group met in a coffee shop in Bentonville. Y'all remember that? Some of you? Wasn't very many. Weren't very many of us. But it's grown a little bit. It's got a good future. How many of you this morning, as this new year approaches, will say this? I'm going to lead a soul to Jesus Christ this year. I'm going to convert one person. Can you make that commitment? Just one. I'm going to lead someone to Jesus. Now, if you get that done rather quickly, you go get another one. Don't stop with one. But Can you not lead one person to Christ? You say, well, Pat, I can't do home studies. Yes, but others among us can. If you will set the study up, we'll do the study. David, Ben, me, others. Jesse, Miguel, Jared, others. We'll study. Mark. Let's make that a goal. Christ this morning, folks, offers living water. That's what he offered this woman. That living water is available to you today. And if you're here today and you haven't drank the water of life, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have salvation, if you need that living water, if you're thirsty for what 
what Jesus can give and what other people here around you have, that water is available for you to drink today. And we invite anyone who needs it to come and drink, to come as we sing the song of invitation. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.